Welcome to See, Hear, Speak podcast, episode 21. In this episode, I talk with Lida Restrepo, professor at Arizona State University. Lida and I discuss issues around dual language learners, including educational policies, identification of developmental language disorder, literacy growth, the impact of speaking more than one language to children with and without developmental language disorder, and her current studies of reading comprehension in bilingual children. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com to sign up for email alerts for new episodes and content, read a transcript of this podcast, access articles and resources that we discussed, and find inform more information about our guests. But speaking of those resources, I'm still a bit behind on getting them posted to the website. Why, might you ask? Well, I've been traveling quite a bit this fall, both locally and nationally, to conferences to present my research findings. And next week, I have the annual conference of the American Speech-Language Hearing Association, or ASHA. So my goal is to get the website resources up to date in early December. So please stay posted on social media where I'll make an announcement once I get that up to date. And don't forget, if you enjoy this podcast, please don't uh, or please subscribe and leave a positive rating in Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Well, Lida, thank you for joining me on See, Hear, Speak podcast. I'm very excited to talk to you today about your research, and I'll have you start by introducing yourself. Well, hello. Um, I'm Lida Restrepo. I'm faculty, uh, for, uh, I'm a professor at Arizona State University in the program of uh, Speech and Hearing Science. And I have been at ASU since uh, 2015. A 2004. <laughs> I've been here 15 years. Oh, yes. And since uh, last year, I'm also assistant dean for research. So that has given me a broad view of um, healthcare in the College of Health Solutions and also made me think how reading also fits into the, the healthcare so we had to think about that, but we see it as a critical component of of health is literacy in general. So, wow, anyway. that's great! I didn't know that, Lida. Congratulations on that position. I didn't know you had that. That's very cool. <laughs> very cool. You know, because you're not busy enough, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I get. I had the pleasure of working with you on the Language and Reading Research Consortium, or LARC, um, and in that project, uh, we had, I've talked about it on the podcast before, but we had, um, you know, several arms of it, but one of them was to study children longitudinally pre-K to grade three. And then we also had an intervention portion and you really headed up a portion that I haven't talked that much about. And that is the bilingual portion of the study. Um, can you tell the listeners, you know, what you what your involvement was in LARC and what that sample was like for both the longitudinal and for intervention? Sure. So, uh, so the, the bilingual sample in the LARC project came strictly from Arizona. We had, we started with about 280 children uh, in preschool and we followed them longitudinally until third grade. And uh, so we, we basically, evaluated the oral language decoding phonemic awareness skills as well as memory uh, from pre-k through third grade and we started with mostly 
Spanish measures as these children were coming from Spanish-speaking backgrounds, and then uh, we had to switch to English. We would have liked to maintain both languages, but we were doing five to six hours of testing on these kids. So we had to compromise on the number of measures, but we, we followed this sample, and now we have two other grants that are following them through sixth and eighth grade. Oh, that's, well. that's great. And then did you do intervention work with them, correct? We had the intervention in Spanish. But that was a different sample. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't as involved with the intervention. Well, I shouldn't say that. I, I was involved <laughs> with, uh, uh, with, uh, with uh, they, well, we, I was involved with the intervention mm -hmm. to some level, not as much as with the assessment piece. But uh, we did do uh, an intervention, but only in preschool. Mm -hmm. So we have a curriculum for preschool children, and the results of this are still actually being evaluated. Uh, we know we have significant effects for vocabulary, but in the other areas of the preschool, uh, we're still kind of working on that. So I have, I, I will put in the um, podcast resources, the link to the lessons for LARC. And I, okay. I, I don't know if the bilingual lessons are on there, actually. I haven't looked. I don't know, actually. I, I'm not sure either. I'll have to check and see. I'll make a note on the resources yeah. page. But the English lessons are there for pre-K through grade three. So in case listeners want to check those out. Yeah. You mentioned that the bilingual children were from Arizona only. Do you, in your experiences, what are some of the differences of bilingual children in Arizona versus other states? Okay, that's a very good question. Um, what, so so the, there's the political situation, you know, that is an English only state, which means that there's a law uh, forbidding bilingual education for English language learners or dual language learners. Mm. Uh, so that has implications on how their native language develops and so on. And I can, I, I can talk to you a little bit more about that later. Mm -hmm. the, other, the other big thing about the greater Phoenix area is that we tend to have, when we go to, we tend to have a very low income and low parental education sample it doesn't mean that they're all like that. It means that when we go to schools that are primarily, primarily Latino, that's the makeup of the school. You know, there's a large educated population in Arizona, but for efficiency purpose, when we go and do research in Latino schools, those schools are primarily 90% free and reduced lunch. And in our sample, we have like 60% of the parents don't have high school education. Mm -hmm. So we have multiple risk factors that in other states might not be the case. And, uh, and if we go outside the Phoenix area or we expand to schools that are not primarily uh, Latino, then we see more variation. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And I often find differences in results with Texas and Minnesota and Massachusetts, and I think is that multiple set of risk factors that are present in our samples. You know, that, that makes a lot of sense, and I've uh, 
published on a different study that, that you're not involved in with your colleague Shelley Gray and Mary Ald, and we had a, a sample of children bilingual where we were testing their working memory. And we had a paper come out last year in language sharing services in the schools and a special issue on working memory where we showed we didn't that the children in our sample didn't have the bilingual advantage that everyone talks about in central executive functioning in particular, but in lots of measures in working memory. And one of the reasons we proposed was that the sample that we have in Arizona is different uh, than what we see in other places. And a lot of that bilingual advantage work is done out of Canada, uh, you know, French English, um, and they do tend to have some higher socioeconomic status. And, and, and I think also just even some factors, uh, you know, in Canada where they promote and cherish the bilingualism, whereas you said in Arizona, the policies are such that um, it's really looking towards an English only, so more of a um, enculturation to a single uh, language. Right, right. So, and they're forbidding in many cases of speaking their language at school. Wow, I didn't know that. That's, mm. I was, when I came as a professor at the University of Arizona, one thing that really shocked me was that when I would work with my students who had a background, um, you know, they had their family was from Mexico and maybe they were first or second generation they didn't have the language skills in Spanish that I thought they might based on their family interactions. And they told me that a lot of it was because they were told, you know, even in their family, like you need to speak English, you need to speak English. And interestingly enough, there were those who were not coming from a background of having Spanish in the home who spoke better Spanish uh, and were the bilingual speech pathologists and some of them had even gone to Spanish immersion programs. And to get into the Spanish immersion program, you had to show good English skills, which was just shocking to me. And I thought it was such yeah. a discrepancy uh, by who yeah. was bilingual. And I'm wondering if you're seeing that too with some of your students. Sorry, I was trying to yeah, oh, we, we see, uh, we, because a lot of these children don't develop literacy in the native language. Mm. And, and because they are not allowed to speak. And, and many times the teachers, pediatricians, tell the parents to only speak English to help the child, unknowingly that actually it has all kinds of negative consequences for the family, the cultural transmission, for the literacy development and, and language development in the native language. So yes, that's often the case. That's and Fred Genesee says this is a waste of a wonderful resource. Mm -hmm. So I students and children are having a resource that would be valuable to the whole community. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So you work with children with language impairments uh, in both English and those who are um, uh, bilingual. When you talk to these families, how do you counter that? What do you tell them to counter advice they might be getting wrong advice from pediatricians or whoever to say only speak one language? So the, the first thing is that only speaking a language doesn't make the disorder go away or cure it or make it any less severe. Second, that by only speaking in English, the second language, the consequences are the lack of communication or reducing the ability to communicate at home. There's no evidence, zero evidence, that focusing only on English 
uh, helps at all. The research that we have either shows that that uh, developing the two languages is as good for English achievement as focusing only on English or or sometimes focusing only on English makes the situation worse. Uh, so so the, the Spanish can have a facility or the native language, it doesn't mean which language, can have a facilitative effect, can help them transition. Developing literacy skills helps them solidify the native language, but the consequences are mostly in communication in the home and their own culture. But at the same time, there's no evidence that it helps, and we have evidence that it actually is harmful in developing the native language, which is the home language for communication. So, so I have to convince them that it's not going to hurt, and in fact, it's going to help the English by having strong language and strong communication skills at home. How is it received by parents when you talk to them? Is there resistance, or are they relieved? No, they actually feel empowered. Great. That, and some of them say, that's what I thought, but the teacher told me this, or the psychologist told me that, or the pediatrician told me that. So the, once they understand that it can have negative consequences in the home and their behavior management and how they talk to their children, they, they value it. And, and, they, and they, as long as you tell me it doesn't hurt the English because they want their children to be successful in it. So if they understand that, then they feel receptive to improving their own home language. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's fantastic. I hope that message gets out more and more. Um, it's such a critically important message. And as you said, it's not only that it doesn't cure the language impairment, but it can really hurt the interactions at home and create more communication difficulty at home and also the cultural identity aspect, too. Um, yeah. Now, I, this they is the minor question. They their own culture, and they yeah. also don't feel accepted in the second culture. Mm -hmm. So my goal for them and the families is that, that they have a bilingual, bicultural, and biliterate identity. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yes. What policies do you think need to be in place to support that goal that are not in place now? No, they're not in place. Arizona, we have a new uh, superintendent of schools. And she would like to repeal the, the, the English-only policy. They have found that it has a lot of, uh, that, that actually performance has decreased mm. in academic achievement, and it has not had any of the positive effects that people were told it was going to have. So the reading achievement continues to be lagging behind. So my hope is that the law will be repealed. And that bilingual uh, dual immersion education becomes available to the dual language learners. Right now, it's only available to children that speak English. But it defeats the whole purpose of dual language immersion, which allows children who speak another language to be the role models for the English speakers in that other language. So uh, I'm hoping that that will happen this year and that we'll see some changes. I think we also need to see some changes. The, the, the law had the segregation policy, so the children were pulled out of all the academics, like, like social studies, science, and so on, for four hours. Then it became two hours, 
but during that time there was a lot of drill uh, into English development and use of very inappropriate curriculums. In fact, I have a teacher in my master's class now who is now pursuing the speech pathology and she was very disappointed in that they had to do these English rote repetition and memorization curriculum that served the children of purpose and she was literally in tears trying to explain to the rest of the class how powerless she felt in that classroom. So I'm hoping that those policies that of dictating curriculums that are not appropriate for even for English acquisition go away and that their the teachers can use their knowledge and skills to instruct the kids because they, they, these teachers were pretty much told exactly what to do. Wow, that's so disappointing. And you're yeah. new, the new superintendent of school, or no, what did you say, secretary, is she a speech pathologist? She's actually a speech pathologist and teacher. Wow. So she has background in both areas. Mm. Yeah. That gives she, a lot of hope. Yes. Are there yes. certain states you think do it right that, you, that you'll base as an example for Arizona? Oh, that's a tough question. Actually, Massachusetts seems to have very high uh, uh, achievement, but they did have for for a while the English only law. Yep. When I was there, there it was there was bilingual education. Texas has bilingual education, mm -hmm. uh, but I was just with a colleague that is actually bilingual education, and there's other issues. So I don't think bilingual education per se solves all the problems. We have to have quality curriculum, appropriate professional development, you know. So, so uh, the, then we it comes down to do we have the appropriate tools to deliver curriculum and stuff. So uh, California just abolished it a couple of years ago, so we haven't seen recent results, but I would like to see how California is doing it. Mm -hmm. um, but we, we need high quality curriculum for everybody with appropriate techniques and, and that's what's needed for both special ed and regular ed. Um, my students say right now that are in eighth grade, they say they have eighth graders right now, whole classrooms of eighth graders reading below third grade. Oh. You know, they can't decode, they can't comprehend, and it's like we can't keep blaming the kids. Right. Right. So, it's educational malpractice, really. I mean, it is shocking. Um, when yeah. you see what these children have had to go through. And, and we have very hardworking teachers. Right. So I, I don't want to blame teachers. <laughs> right. I, you know, because they, they are working hard and they're mm -hmm. in the classroom every day. So we have to give them the tools mm -hmm. that to deliver the appropriate curriculum. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when I think of educational malpractice, I think less of the teachers and more about the policies. The policies and the models. You know, yeah. that's really kind of, I think, what's driving it. One thing, this is a minor question, but I'm curious. There's a lot of terms thrown around for children who are learning. So there's, I've heard English as a second language, dual language learners. What term do you prefer and why? I prefer dual language learners, which had started adopted a while ago because the children are still developing both languages. Mm -hmm. 
And English as a second language is only focused on English and English language learners, again, is also focused on English. But uh, children are developing both languages. So there's also the term emerging bilinguals, but that's kind of more at the earlier stages mm -hmm. the, of, uh, uh, of the second language. Mm -hmm. So I normally use dual language learners. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. I was wondering about that. Even when I was thinking about this podcast, I was thinking, what do I say? But I know your publications, you use dual language learners. Yeah. Um, and you've traveled quite a bit. Were you on sabbatical recently? I was in Israel yeah. uh, 2017, 2018, That's working awesome. at, uh, at Bar Ilan University. Yeah. And what do they think about, or what do you think from a world perspective that we could learn about dual language learners here? Oh my God, from a world perspective? Yep. And it depends, it's, it's, it's an interesting opinion I have because yeah. countries that value bilingualism value them until they have a minority population. So mm -hmm. in Europe, it's very well valued until they have people from Turkey or Syria or the Middle East, and then that population doesn't get valued as well, and the, then the bilingualism doesn't work for those. They don't believe in bilingualism for those populations. So um, in, in Israel, there's a, there's, a, there's bilingualism valued, Right, and uh, yes. Arabic-speaking kids learn Arabic and Hebrew, uh, but it is not as common that the Hebrew-speaking kids learn Arabic. Interesting. Uh, even when there's bilingual education, there's the majority rule kind of situation. Mm -hmm. So it's there's always that political, cultural mm -hmm. influence in how bilingualism is perceived and implemented. Oh, that's, that's really interesting. That is, that's, that, that's pretty fascinating because you often, I always often think about other countries just have it right because they know, you know, that you should have more more than one language and especially in Europe, but it does make sense that you're still people. And when people implement policies, biases play into those policies because people have biases. Right. Yeah. That, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, I followed some of your travels. I thought it looked really interesting. And, uh, and I was like, oh, that's cool. I bet she's learning a lot about different ways of bilingualism across the world. Yes, and, and what's interesting about Arabic, for example, is that the oral language and written language are different. Yes. So how do you promote literacy in children who are not quite reading, but you want them to be ready for for literacy in in Arabic and then and then you have different scripts when you have Hebrew and Arabic so that you know the, the, those things are just interesting and and kids learn that no matter what so even if it's the diglosia in Arabic and the Hebrew alphabet and and they all become literate they, and stuff. So it's, I think it's fascinating, all the possibilities. And at least it, it, when we're looking at literacy across languages and all scripts, this idea that kids get confused, no, they don't. They sometimes mix codes, but eventually they sort them out. Like you develop language and you make errors or you different tenses while you're learning the language. 
So they, there's, there are normal developmental processes in these different languages that are very typical mm -hmm. and they don't confuse the kid, which is a, one of the biggest myths. Mm -hmm. That if you teach the kids to read in two languages, they get confused, but they don't. Well, and if they do get confused, like you said, it's just the developmental process. So the system is disrupted for a bit, but then it, it aligns itself and, and gets, you know, learns along the way. So maybe it is a little trickier in the beginning, but then in the end, it's sorted out. Right. So they sort it out and they, they make kind of errors that make sense. They're using one language or the other, but uh, they, it just develops uh, to, to normal levels, like in everybody else. Yeah. Right. So when thinking about this, you said, you know, most children learn it. Of course they do. And it's really fascinating. And I was struck by that even when I was visiting China in May, just the Chinese characters. And I mean, it's just so overwhelming to think about that, but they do learn it. Uh, but then there's some children who don't. And I know your interest in mine too is in developmental language disorder. And, yeah. um, you know, and of course, you know, uh, there's been a whole field on trying to figure out who has developmental language disorder and good sensitivity and specificity and diagnostic parameters. But then it adds an extra layer um, when you have this dual language learning situation or multiple language learning. So what do you, th based on the work you've done, uh, what is the best way to identify or some promising ways to identify language disorders in children who are learning two languages? So we are actually a, a group of us that are all bilingual researchers in the country finishing. I actually have a paper under review oh. uh, right now that is addressing this and is we're basing it as we're calling it looking for converging evidence. Mm. The whole premise is that we look at different sources of information and make informed decisions. So you, we look at language samples, we look at dynamic assessment, we look at standardized tests if they're available, uh, parent and teacher report, and, and try to find converging evidence to support whether the presence or absence of a disorder. But, uh, so that way you don't rely on one source that might not be 100% sensitive to the identification of the language disorders. So that, and I've, I've been saying this for many, many years in, in terms of the assessment process that we, we have to have multiple sources of evidence to, to make such a diagnosis. Yeah. I think so there's no magic bullet yet. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. And we're finding that in the study of dyslexia too, like everyone thinks, or there's a lot of work showing that they have phonological deficits in dyslexia, for instance, but even now that we have these policies to do early identification of dyslexia, the, the, those that are researching um, identification are really going towards this multifactorial model because it does seem like you need to have multiple factors that indicate that you have dyslexia versus just one factor, or at least, especially when you're thinking about risk, too. Yeah. Um, so, so that makes a lot of sense. What are the factors that you're finding? Hmm? What are the other factors that are your, your findings? Well, so one of them would be family history is a big one. So if they have a family history, um, if they have had receptive language problems, if they have speech production problems early on, um, mm -hmm. if they have a phonological deficit that plays in. But even just, um, I was at the International Dyslexia Association 
um, Hugh Katz and Yaakov Petra were presenting on some of the new work they have, even looking at perseverance and some more, you know, thinking of more of like even personality kinds of traits that play into the risk factor. And, mm -hmm. you know, and they find it's really the interaction between all of these factors that seems to be making uh, the determination. But it, it's very similar to what you're talking about with this converging evidence, because it is this idea that maybe one factor, as you add on factors, it's going to just be accumulating model of risk. Yeah. Um, and then we all, they also talked a lot about protective factors too. So, you know, maybe you have risk, like if, like a checklist kind of thing, like you have two points of risk, but maybe you have three points of protection and protection would, for factors would be like, for instance, a really strong intervention environment, um, maybe a home literacy environment, um, or if you have, you know, this perseverance, um, or maybe you have good processing speed, that's another one, you know, so there's a lot of these different uh, protective factors too, which would be interesting to think about with your converging evidence paper as well as yeah. like, what are some of the factors that help? Yeah. Mm -hmm. We hadn't done that. That's, that's important. It's actually kind of funny. The model Hugh talked about is, I think it's called cumulative risk and protection model. And he was joking about it, saying it was the crap model. <laughs> it doesn't have a great acronym. <laughs> and I think, every, you know, and because of that, I think everyone's going to remember it. I know I did. <laughs> um, but I think that, it, you know, it was really fun to talk about that and think about the protective part, because we often don't think about that aspect um, in any you know, impairments, um, not just dyslexia, but I think that's a new area coming from social psychology, looking at resilience in kids who've had, yeah, right? Like kids who've been in traumatic situations, like why are some, some have better outcomes than others? Um, yeah. And so that's really interesting. So it seems so to me- in healthcare, there's also that focus on looking at, instead of how to manage complex cases when everything goes down is, how successful complex cases, you know, get resolved or intervene. So I've seen it in, in, in high school social sciences of risk factors for behavior, but in healthcare, and it's great that it's now coming into language and literacy. Mm -hmm. It's looking at the protective factors and resilience factors. Yeah, yeah, I think that, yeah, especially I think as we move towards more universal screening, approaches not only for dyslexia, I'd love to see it for language impairment too, but then, you know, how it is with the, you know, when you're doing those um, models of, of who's, who's at risk and who's not, then it really gets complicated because it's all a probability, yeah. you know how that is. Yeah. And in thinking about the language impairment diagnosis, it does seem like, and maybe, you know, I'd love to hear about what, what you discussed in your converging evidence paper in this regard. So I hear this two schools of thought. One is, you should always assess the child in their native language to determine if they have a language impairment. And the other one is more pragmatic in the sense that, you know, we can't always assess in a native language. So dynamic assessment is one way to go. So teach them something in English or just even dynamic assessment being more like progressive monitoring over time. So where, where do you fall in that continuum of thinking? How does converging evidence play into that? Kind of discussion. So we actually uh, argue that you need to look at both languages yeah. uh, as much as possible. I know pragmatically that's not always possible, <laughs> but uh, because kids have different strengths, and Liz Pena has shown that, where 
kids will have a strength in semantic development and a weakness in, in morphology in one language versus the other. So, and, and in their assessment, you're looking at the strength across the different skills and languages. So you're not making the decision just based on one language. Uh, because it could be that they have higher vocabulary in English, but better grammar in Spanish, for example. So in that, in that sense, it's always important to look at, at the two languages as much as you can. Pragmatically, that's not always the case. Dynamic assessment is interesting because uh, there's only a handful of tools available that are actually standardized and norm for that purpose. It does, you still need to have a measure that is valid for that purpose. So unless you have a validated measure, you're doing dynamic assessment, it's problematic. Yeah. Um, so in, in our equation, dynamic assessment enters into part of that converging evidence. But what's most discriminating about dynamic assessment is the modifiability scale. It's not so much the pre and post test scores, but the modifiability scale. And that's very consistent across studies, you know. So, uh, and so for example, when we looked uh, in, a, in a little pilot study we did a, a response to intervention, all children learn. But in dynamic assessment, what differentiates is how much effort does the clinician put into getting change. Oh, that's really interesting. So that's what you mean by modifiability scale? Exactly. Yes, is, is how the child responds to the task, how much clin uh, clinician effort was the attention of the child, and so on. So the, there's, there's a couple of different scales. Uh, and, but one is more focused on the child and one is more focused on, on the clinician effort to um, affect change. Oh, that's really interesting. those are the ones that are differentiating, not so much the pre-post test, per se. Hmm, that is, that's really intriguing. Um, and makes a lot of sense because I can think about children I've worked with at, at the end, they may have the same score, but whoo, I had to give lots of repetitions or I had a lot of redirections or there was a lot of pause time or is that kind of what you're thinking with modifiability scale? Yeah, right. It's, it's all those. Is, is uh, was the child uh, on task? Mm -hmm. uh, was the generalizability of the task and so on? Well, that's that's very interesting. And is that in the, pa the paper? You do you talk a little bit about that. We have a paper that, uh, that in the pa that in the paper, but Liz Pena has published quite a bit on that. Okay. Many of the papers she has, and my student, who's now a faculty at AU, did a study with Navajo children, and again, the modifiability all alone. Uh, discriminated with 100% accuracy. Wow, that's so intriguing. Huh. And it, it seems like maybe the modifiability also gets at a nuance that might even be a sense of this resilience or protective factor. Because yeah. Yeah. maybe if the kid is a child who really perseveres and, and you know has maybe extra attention or things like that that can play into what would be counted as resilience, Mm -hmm. um, that would give them a better modifiability score. That's, hmm. 
That's very cool. I'll definitely put that, uh, those resources in the podcast website because I think the listeners will be interested in, in that new aspect. But speaking yeah. of new, um, what are some of your recent findings and, and what do they mean for clinical practice? Like when you, what are you telling your uh, audiences that you present to and your students these days? Oh gosh, uh, in, in what areas? I know. Uh, I like to ask the really hard questions, Lida. <laughs> yeah. So, in in terms of uh, in, ter in terms of uh, language sample analyses, mm -hmm. uh, I still find it very valuable. But understanding the child's history of where they've been and how much input they're getting and output they're doing in the in the language becomes very important because we see children that improve, children that plateau, and children that decrease ability in the native language. So when you when we look at language sample analysis, we need to know what the language history of the child is in order to determine is this consistent with the input and output, are the results consistent? with the input and output that child is getting. So that's one area that I think, um, and, and we're not calling it so much language loss anymore, but we think there's a restructuring of the language or uh, protracted development in the native language in the morphology aspect that, that it might not continue to develop, especially in contexts where there's no stimulation outside the home. So that's why it's very critical that clinicians understand that. In other areas, we're using uh, embodied cognition to do interventions for reading comprehension and for language development. So we have a grant from the Arts and Humanities grant of the Department of Ed at teaching theater techniques to teachers to enhance reading and teaching children uh, as they do their dialogic reading and so on. So it's teaching drama techniques to uh, enact characters and, uh, and so on. So that's, uh, I'm excited about that. We, we think it's gonna improve comprehension, um, but is, is, is implementing, and we're working with a theater company, a local theater company, Child, Child's Play, here in Arizona that have very good experience in professional development in theater, but they never evaluated the language growth in the children. Wow. So, so that is very exciting. And then uh, also we have a grant from the National Science Foundation to implement a dialogic reading with parents on iPads. So we are going, these are for bilingual parents, so we're developing uh, like a virtual tutoring system for parents to read to their kids in, in Spanish and learn how to ask questions and so on. So there's been some models on that and we're hoping to start testing our app um, with that the virtual tutoring system and it also uses actually embodied cognition so kids can move the the characters and so on but the focus of this grant is training the parents and if they can't read the ipad can read for them in spanish so you would get over the low literacy mm. issues that we encounter with many parents that they don't have the skill to read 
wow, that's so cool, Lida. What age for students, uh, for the theater and for the app? What age? The theater is for preschool. Yeah, and the, the NSF grant is for school-age kids, like seven through nine, nine oh. years of age. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, I think that's so great. I love how you're incorporating the literacy part, too, you know, not just the language aspect, but really thinking about the language literacy connection in these dual-language learners. Yeah, that's great. I don't know that that's always as, as common as, um, as it could be, so I, I appreciate that so much. So the drama is all connected to books. Mm -hmm. So to to books that they are reading and learning to to use tools from drama to comprehend and think about and discuss about the book. Oh, that's and, so awesome! Yeah, and then the other one is is literacy by bringing parents to read to their with their kids. Uh, at the school age, because often we see it supported in the preschool, but not so much in school age kids. Oh, that's fair. And I love how you get around the literacy aspect by having the iPod read to them, um, yeah. so that the parents don't have to feel that, oh, I can't read this to them. I don't have that literacy. Yeah. That's great. Well, speaking of literacy, I'm mindful of our time, and I'm going to wrap up here pretty quick with you. Uh, what a great discussion. Uh, but I'm wondering about your favorite book from childhood or now, so it can either, but just a favorite book of yours. I was thinking about that. Uh, the favorite book from childhood was actually a book of rhymes, but I'm trying to... Uh, 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 the author is Rafael Pombo. I think. I'm not positive. I'm going to have to look it up. Okay. But it, it, it's rhymes. Mm -hmm. uh, so I remember carrying that book every place. And it was all uh, little stories and rhymes that I really enjoyed. Oh. But I'm telling you that I really enjoy reading uh, Isabel Allende. She's a, she's a, a Chilean um author but she's very prolific in the u.s and lives in the u.s and she's uh, I, I really enjoy her books as well so well, and lida where were you born and raised i was born in medellin colombia colombia and i moved here 40 years ago oh wow 40 years yes oh, oh that's great now do you visit often not as often as i would like <laughs> I know. Well, years. Yeah. I think I know why after you told me all your projects. <laughs> yeah. Well, Lida, thank you so much for talking with me today. I really well, appreciate thank you it. For having me. Yeah, I really enjoyed this. Check out www.seeherspeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast, including, for example, the podcast transcript research articles, and speaker bios. You can also sign up for email alerts on the website or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other listening platform so you can be the first to hear about new episodes. Thank you for listening and good luck to you, making the world a better place by helping one child at a time.